Well, thank you, worship team. Um, my name is Austin Pettit. I'm one of the teaching pastors here at Alpine, and I'm super glad you're here today. You picked a great day to be in church, and it's more than just our functioning air conditioning, which is a big win, by the way, on today especially. Um, but besides the fact that it's nice and cool here, we have a neat story to go through today that shows us a little something more about Jesus, who He is, and what He meant to the world around Him. It's interesting because the, the story we're going to talk about today is one where Jesus does something and then presents His disciples with this, this revelatory thing, this piece of information that demands a change, demands a response. We have those kinds of things happen in our lives today. I can think in, in my own life when I realized that I had to marry my wife. You know, before that, I, I, you, know, you know, okay, I, I, she's my best friend. I'm going to marry her. She's awesome. I love her. But then there's that moment where I realize I have to do this. Like, I don't have anything. I have to make some changes. When my kids, when I held my kids for the first time, similar thing. I knew that they were going to be work. I knew they were awesome. I knew they were a blessing. But when I held them, I realized I got to put some of my stuff down so I can keep holding these two. And that's, that's something that's really interesting. And so as we get through these revelatory things that happen in our lives, they demand a response. And today, Jesus does something with his three of his disciples, and he presents them with information that they cannot walk away from. They have to make a choice. They have to make a decision. And it's really awesome. One of the cool things about this story um, is we're going to look at Jesus being in the spotlight. And Jesus being in the spotlight is, is kind of what we do all the time. That's not like a new thing for us. So I kind of laughed when I saw this slide. I said, well, yeah, Jesus is the spotlight. He, he's always the point. But today in this story, he actually is like literally lit up. Uh, we have a story today called the transfiguration of Jesus. This, this word transfiguration isn't really a word I use in language much, except when I'm talking about this story. Uh, but the Oxford Dictionary says transfiguration is to completely change form or appearance into a more beautiful or spiritual state. So the title of, this, of the story, the transfiguration of Jesus, means Jesus looked different. That, that's really what that means. But he looked different in a way that was something supernatural, something that, that we couldn't do on our own. If you're curious, we're going to be um, in the, the Gospel of Mark chapter 9 today. If you have your Bibles, your Bible apps, you might want to start turning there, get a finger on that page. Um, we're going to start today, though, with an interesting quote from a famous author. So a lot of people have done research and, and investigated Jesus' teachings and his, the things he did, and we often say here at church that Jesus said things only God can say, and he did things only God can do. As we go through those stories, and we see the story today, there's an author named C.S. Lewis who came to a conclusion on his research, and it was part of one of his talks that he gave during World War II. He gave talks on the BBC radio. They actually cataloged all these talks into a book called Mere Christianity. And this passage is, is interesting because he says, of all the things he's learned about Jesus, a conclusion has to be drawn. So I'm going to read this to you. C.S. Lewis says, I am trying to here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic 
on a level with a man who says that he's a poached egg, or else would be the devil of hell. He says, you have to make a decision. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. What he's saying here is when you look at the things Jesus said, the things Jesus did, and we're going to look at more of that today, he's one of three things. He's either a liar, he's a lunatic, or he's Lord. But he won't be ignored. You can't just dismiss him as a great moral teacher. You can't just think of him as some guy. The data suggests we have to make a choice. And the choice is before all of us today and every day, what we're going to do with Jesus. As we get into our story today, we're going to see something incredible happens that drives his disciples to this point. We're going to be in Mark chapter 9. We're going to start in verse 2. And it starts off with saying, Six days later, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain to be alone. Now, six days after what? Right? That's an important thing to remember. When you're studying your Bibles, when there's times like this, make sure you figure out what happened before this. If you joined us last week, uh, Pastor Ray talked about the, the teaching of Jesus' cost of discipleship. He was teaching his disciples what it means to really follow him. He's like, this isn't going to be a joyride or a party. You have to deny yourself, lay down your cross, and follow him every day. And Jesus talked about the fact that he's going to die, but he's going to come back in glory. And his disciples didn't seem to really get in that last part about him dying and coming back. That didn't make sense to them because that didn't jive with what they knew about the Old Testament. So he took three of them up a mountain. These are his three closest guys. These are his three inner circle. These are the guys that he's going to use to start his church when he's gone. Peter, James, and John, you would think that they'd be like more holy or smarter than the other guys, but it's not even close to true, which is really encouraging because Jesus' closest friends struggle with the same things that I struggle with today. So he took them up the mountain, and as they watched, Jesus' appearance was transformed, and his clothes became dazzling white, far whiter than any earthly bleach could make them. Why does that matter? Okay, Jesus has got white clothes on. What, what, what's the point of that? The verbiage here, the phraseology is this dazzling white, far whiter than an earthly bleach. That's telling us that something unusual has happened. This is so white that we can't make that kind of white. We, we as people can't do that. We don't have the chemicals. We don't have the processes. And Jesus just turned white. Like, he didn't, like, put on new clothes. He just started glowing. This white color, this glowing imagery is associated in the Bible with divinity, purity, holy. These are things that happen when God's around, not when we are around all by ourselves. I'd like to, to bring us back to a story in the Old Testament that kind of shows some of this and how it works. In the book of Exodus, right, we, Exodus is, is about Israel leaving Egypt and going to the promised land. And this guy, Moses, is in charge of that process. He's, he's the one leading Israel. And Moses is the one who went to Pharaoh and plagues came. Then the Red Sea was parted, and then they, they got God's law, and manna, and quail, and water from a rock, and a golden calf, and a lot of crazy things happened where God showed up and did things only God can do. But despite all the blessings, and all the, all the protection, and all the kindness that God was showing His people, His people were 
not super grateful. In fact, they were pretty grumbly and pretty miserable. They would often say things like, why did you bring us out to the desert to starve? We could have had food in Egypt, right, over and over and over again. So we come to a story in Exodus 33. This is toward the end of the the story. Moses is tired. And he's like, God, are you sure I'm supposed to be in charge of these people? Are you sure these are your people? Are you 100% sure? Because this isn't working, God. These people don't deserve you. And he's, he's struggling. He's asking God to show him. God, show me some of your glory. Show me some of your power so I can know that you really are who you say you are. And you really do, will do what you said you will do. And God doesn't punish him for it. God doesn't say, oh, you weak-willed little man, too bad. God shows up. And in verse 21, the Lord says, look, stand near me on this rock. As my glorious presence passes passes by, I will hide you in the crevice of the rock and cover you with my hand until I've passed by. Then I'll remove my hand and let you see me from behind, but my face will not be seen. This idea that you can't, you shouldn't look on God's face has to do with His holiness. See, His holiness is so overwhelming, so overpowering, we imperfect people can't be in His presence, in His holiness. We die. God didn't want to kill Moses. He had work for him to do still. He's like, all right, look, I'm going to help you out. I'm going to let you see some of my glory, but I'm not going to kill you. So this all happens. Moses sees God's glory. It's amazing. And then later on in the story, we read, he walks on the mountain, and he's glowing. Like, people are like, whoa, dude, you, some, what's, what happened to you? Right? They put a veil over his head because he was, he was just so freaky looking. Like, you can't glow like that. That's not what people do. But he was in the presence of God's glory. And being in God's glory causes us to glow. In Jesus' story here, Jesus wasn't glowing. He was producing. Jesus was emitting the glory of God. This was an idea that he is divine. He is God. This is proof, in fact, that people can't do this. And the disciples knew that. And then the story got even crazier. I mean, besides the fact that your friend is standing there glowing white all of a sudden, we have these two guys show up that are Elijah and Moses, and they begin talking with Jesus. Now, there's a couple questions here, and these are silly questions, but first question, how do they know what Elijah and Moses look like? How do they recognize these guys? Their picture wasn't in the temple for you to walk by and put gum on, right? That wasn't, how do they know this was Moses and Elijah? Also, what were they talking about? I I would love to know what, what... this great man of, of the law and this great prophet we're talking about with the Son of God. I'd love to be there for that. We don't know. We don't know. And, that, and the, that's important because it's not important. We don't have to know what they were talking about. The point wasn't what they were talking about. The point was who they are. So Moses and Elijah are not just two schmoes that Jesus knows that brought back from dead. Moses in Old Testament culture was equivalent with the law. Like, he represented God's law to his people. Moses brought the Ten Commandments down off the mountain. He brought God's law to his people. God's law existed to create a way for people to maintain relationship with God while Jesus was on his way. So this was their connection to God. God's law was how they connected with God. And then Elijah is often referred to as, like, the prophet. He's the prophet of prophets. He's the dude. Right? This is the guy that was on Mount Carmel who called down fire and the prophets of Baal all died because they were wrong. This is the guy who kings were afraid of because if he said a battle would go one way from God, that's the way it went, and you had no choice in the matter. So if Elijah was on Israel's side with God, there was no way you were in that battle, and kings were terrified of this guy. Elijah represents the prophets 
in this story. So we have the law and we have the prophets showing up to talk to Jesus, the transcendent Son of God. That's a big deal. Until Jesus came, the Israelites' connection to God was through God's Word and through His words, through His prophet, and through His law. So we had the law and God's Word connected. So that's why those guys were so important. The story continues in a minute here with the disciples' response. Now, if I was in their shoes, I'm not sure I would respond with, with professionalism and, and, and wit and, and smartness. I'm pretty sure I would say something stupid because that's what I do. When I'm faced with situations that I can't understand, that I can't deal with, I'll just blurt out the first thing in my head because that's the way I'm wired, right? Go confident even if you're wrong, right? That's, that's how I work. The cool thing is that's also how Peter worked. We're going to see here. But the thing that Peter and James and John had up on us, had up on me, is that they were familiar with their Old Testament teachings. So in, in the Old Testament, there's a prophecy that actually talks about this kind of scene and gives them some peace of mind to know this isn't something totally unrelated to what's going on. So there's, a, there's an Old Testament minor prophet. He's the great Italian prophet Malachi, which is a bad dad joke. I'm sorry. It was, it was a high school joke. And my, my friend thought it was, obviously it wasn't that funny, but it's really, his name is Malachi, okay? And, and he, was, he was sharing prophecies from God. In Malachi chapter 4, um, I'm going to focus on verse 5 here. He says, God says, look, I'm sending you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord arrives. This great and dreadful day of the Lord, in the Old Testament in, in that time, they thought that the Messiah and the judgment day were the same event. So they knew Elijah had to come before the Messiah. We now know that there's two different events, but Moses, or excuse me, Elijah had to come before the Messiah could come. So in, in the disciples' minds, they're like, okay, our best friend's glowing white. That's weird. Um, Moses and Elijah here. Elijah makes sense. Moses, I don't, we'll ask him about it in a little bit. But while they're thinking about this, Peter pops up. And thank goodness for Peter because I relate to him so well because I would do the same thing if I was in his shoes. So he said in verse 5, Peter exclaimed, Rabbi, it's wonderful for us to be here. Let's make three shelters and memorials, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He said this because he didn't know what else to say, for they were all terrified. <laughs> Thank you, Peter. Thank you for saying what we would all be thinking. Peter wanted to do something, right? It's uncomfortable sitting there not knowing what to do. It's uncomfortable trying to figure things out on your own. So I'm going I'm to do some stuff. I'm going to fail forward. I'm going to try some stuff because that's better than being uncomfortable, I've had an entire week of distractions and questions like this of what do I do now, and I'm fighting that too. I really want to do something, but I don't know what to do. In Peter's situation, Jesus didn't bury him for it. He didn't rebuke him. He didn't tell him to knock it off. He didn't say, come on, Peter, why do you keep doing this? No, something else happens. It says, then a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my dearly loved son. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, Moses and Elijah were gone, and they only saw Jesus with them. This is big imagery, folks. This is huge. Right? Up to this point, the Israelite nation's connection with God is through the law and the prophets. And then God shows up and says, hey, we've got the law, the prophets, and my son. That's my son. Listen to what he says. I'm taking the law and the prophets away. You don't need them anymore. Jesus came to fulfill 
the law, to fulfill the prophets. Everything the law and the prophets wrote down is pointing toward Jesus. And so when this happens, the disciples are like, uh, okay, okay, that, I, I, think, I think I get it, maybe. I don't know, God, let's ask him that later on. But they were all just totally freaked out. The point God makes here to Peter, though, is stop trying to do stuff. Just listen. And gang, that's, that's the hardest lesson of the day to learn is stop trying to do things and just listen to what Jesus says. It's a lesson I'm trying to learn as well. But we don't need the law and we don't need to do the right things and Jesus. We don't need to go to the right places and know Jesus. We don't need to listen to the right people and know Jesus. We only need Jesus, right? Jesus plus nothing is everything. Ironically, Rob is wearing that shirt in the sound booth right now, which I didn't tell him to, but it was just a cool thing. But Jesus plus nothing is the point, gang. And all we have to do is listen to what he says. The story continues in verse 9. As they're going back down the mountain, Jesus told them not to tell anyone what they'd seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept it to themselves, but they often, often asked each other what he meant by rising from the dead. So they still didn't quite get this whole rising from the dead thing. Like, you're the Messiah. You're supposed to conquer and set your kingdom up. You can't do that while you're dead. And this rising from the dead doesn't make sense. They, they weren't getting it. They, they were missing the boat. They were missing it so bad that they thought, they thought, hey, you know what? We just saw Elijah. That's supposed to happen. Let's ask Jesus about it. So they asked him about it, and they said, why do the teachers of religious law insist that Elijah must return before the Messiah comes? And you can almost hear Jesus take a deep breath. Yes, Elijah is indeed coming first to get everything ready. But why do the scriptures say that the Son of Man must suffer greatly and be treated with utter contempt? He's like, yeah, guys, you read that passage, but you missed the rest of it. I'm trying to talk to you guys about the fact that I'm going to die. You're going to freak out, but I'm coming back. And if you're going to follow me, it's not daisies and roses. It's going to be hard, but it's worth it. He's trying to teach these guys a lesson, and they're just not quite connecting the dots. But thank goodness that God loves us more than our own weaknesses deserve, right? In this story, the disciples are struggling with distractions, okay? There's a lot to be distracted by, right? Glowing friend, two dead dudes showed up. Uh, we're talking about walking the mountain. There's a lot of weird things happening, but they're so obsessed with how this all works out. Like, okay, we got it right, right? Elijah comes, and that's how this works. They, they miss the fact that it's not about the how. It's about the who, right? Jesus is the point. Jesus is in the spotlight, literally in this story, because he's the point. And, and we have that same problem today. It's the lesson we're going to learn today is that we are just as easily distracted as the disciples were, if not more so. Our world is full of distractions, right? We have, we have politics, we have sports, we have hobbies, we have stuff outside to do. We also have distractions in the church, right? So we have things that we argue about in the church, which are solid discussions to have, but whether or not the pastor's wearing shoes is not the point of, of, of the day. Luke is clapping for me. So that's not the point, gang. The point is Jesus. And if we spend time wasting time, if I can say that, talking about things that are less important and we miss track of the fact that our job is to listen to Jesus, we become ineffective. It's funny, we started the day with a quote from C.S. Lewis from his book, Mere Christianity. He's written a lot of other books. 
One of my absolute favorites is called The Screw Tape Letters. So The Screw Tape Letters is this fictional account, this back and forth between a, a senior demon in hell and his junior demon on earth, and this, this senior guy is trying to coach the junior guy on how best to get people away from God. Right? They call God the enemy. And it's, it's, a, it's a satirical back and forth, and it's actually really interesting to learn some of the, the tactics that the enemy has for us. In one of these exchanges, he's talking about keeping people distracted to make them ineffective. I'm going to read this to you. This is the demon talking. He says, whenever they, God's people, are attending to the enemy, God... We, the demons, are defeated. But there are ways of preventing them from doing so. The simplest is to turn their gaze away from him toward themselves. Keep them watching their own minds and trying to produce feelings, thereby the action of their own wills. He's saying, you don't have to trick people. Just throw shiny stuff in front of them. I love shiny things. I love chasing shiny things. And that happens. We get distracted by things that are, at best, second best. But oftentimes, it's much worse than that. And we waste our time focusing on things. That we, we, I, I listen to uh, the, the uh, radio station, and we spend a lot of time talking about whether the rapture is going to come pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib. And this is huge, div- divisive topics in the church. And those are interesting topics. They're good discussion points, but they're not the point. We can't waste our time talking and focusing on things that are at best distractions. We need to focus on what Jesus said. Just listen to Jesus. And here's what he said. There's three things that I think everything boils down to in, in, this pa- in these, these passages. The first thing is, what are we supposed to do? Well, there's, there's this, this commission. It's pretty great. It, it's, sorry. There's a commission, and it says, go therefore and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's our job. Go make disciples. That's what we're here for. Everything else is secondary. How do we do that? Well, there's two commandments that are often called the greatest. The greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. The second greatest commandment is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. In these two commandments, all the law is wrapped up. That's it. Go make disciples, love God, love people. That's it. That's all we have to do, gang. And that's what he's telling us to do. When we have decisions to make and we have discussions we have to have, we have to filter them through those lenses. If this choice doesn't help me make disciples or help me love Jesus, love God, love people more, I shouldn't be doing it. And it's that simple, gang. When we follow Jesus, when we, when we go make disciples and we love God, we love people, we are following Jesus, we're pursuing him. And as we follow Jesus, the simple things, the simple ways we understand, the more complicated stuff gets a little clearer. And it's not some kind of supernatural thing. I want to read you a passage from 2 Corinthians. Uh, Paul is talking about this, and he uses some imagery to explain how this kind of works. He says, But whenever someone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away, for the Lord is the Spirit. And wherever the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. So all of us who have had that veil removed can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. And the Lord, who is the Spirit, makes us more and more like Him as we're changed into His glorious image. So there's imagery in here about veils and glory and and, and glorious images, and those are things that are used to describe this process. But don't get wrapped up in thinking this is some kind of supernatural veil pulling. Some of that stuff does happen sometimes. But following Jesus is not any more difficult in concept than any other life skill. Let me give you an example. Car engines, right? 
for a lot of us, including me, they're a bit of a mystery how they work, right? The clutch makes the gears go places, and I like that clutch, but I have no idea how it works, right? It's kind of a magic thing. But if I want to know about a car engine, if I want to learn how that works, I'm going to spend time watching it work, I'm going to talk to folks who do know how it works, and I'm going to read the manual. And if we do those things, we start learning about transfer of power and gear ratios and linkages and electronics, and the basic components of how an engine works helps us understand the more complicated things that were big, mysterious, scary things before. I was joking before the service, we were doing a sound check, and I was talking about uh, electrons and octet rules, and when it comes to atoms and how they arrange themselves and all this complex chemistry, and it was funny because that's kind of mysterious to a lot of folks, but I spent seven years studying it, so it's just, it's just normal to me. That's how this stuff with Jesus works as well. We do the basic things, go make disciples, love God, love people. The more we do that, the less complicated things that are more difficult to understand become. And we don't get wrapped up in the difficult things. We spend our time talking about those three basic things. The other part of this verse is kind of cool. In the middle of verse 17, it says, So all of us who have had the veil removed can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. What does it mean to reflect the glory of the Lord? What does all that mean? Jesus was glowing. Moses reflected the glory of the Lord. What does all that mean? It's nothing spooky. It's nothing weird. It's nothing complicated and supernatural. Reflecting the glory of the Lord means that we start to look and sound and act like Jesus does. We, just, we look like Jesus to a world that desperately needs him. This is, it's, it's, it's not more complicated than that. Let me see if I can use a, a real-world example that may, may be silly to some of you, but um, my friends and I like to play disc golf, frisbee golf, at night. We have these glow-in-the-dark discs that are really cool. It's fun to watch them fly through the dark sky, and it's kind of neat. You know, it, it's a lot of fun. But these glowing discs are super special because they glow, but not by themselves. I've got to charge them up with a flashlight first. And no matter how much light I put in that disc, it's never quite as bright as the light that charges it up. But if I charge it enough, I can throw that bad boy quite a ways away, and it'll stay glowing for me to go find it. And if it takes me some time to find it, which it often does because I, I throw things in weird places, if it takes me half an hour to find the disc, it's usually still glowing, even a little bit. But in the darkness, a little bit of light is as bright as the noon sun. This is an important analogy for us today because we are made to glow. We're made to look like Jesus. We're made to carry His image. We are His image bearers to the world. What that means is we're supposed to be like Him, but we can't produce that on our own. We can't do things to make ourselves look like God. All we can do is sit with Him, learn from Him, and start looking like Him because we act like what we follow, like who we follow. And let me tell you, if you're feeling today like you're not a good enough Christian, like you're not doing the right things, like you're not reading enough Bible, you're not praying enough, you're not singing enough, you're not giving enough, it's just not quite enough, I don't think God can use me because I'm not enough. Let me encourage you, a dim light is super bright in darkness. If you're just doing these things, love God, love people, go make disciples, you are glowing like the sun to the world that's watching around you. 
And if you want to glow more, if you want to be more bright, if you want to be more like Jesus, go learn from him. Go talk to him. Study his word. Follow him. Do what he says. Because the more we're with Jesus, the brighter our charge gets. We're never quite as bright as Jesus, but we sure look like him a lot. And the world is desperate for that light. So when we talk today about what, what this story means to us, we see that Jesus did something only God can do. He, he, he is God, right? This, this story tells us he is God. So you have three choices in front of you to start with. What are you going to do with Jesus? Is he lying? Is he crazy? Or is he exactly who he says he is? You can't ignore him anymore. God brought you here today to hear that he loves you like crazy. He sent Jesus to come save you from a dark world that we can't save ourselves from. And only God can save like he does, and that's why Jesus is here. So what are we going to do with Jesus? Are you going to treat him crazy, liar, or are you going to follow him? If you're going to follow him, don't be afraid to just sit with him and listen to what he says. Love God. Love people. Make disciples. And get charged up, friends, because when you go out into the world, your light starts to fade because we can't glow ourselves. We have to keep going back to the source and keep getting charged up. So let me encourage you today. Go out in the world and be bright because we follow a God who is in himself quite bright. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for today. Thank you for being a, our good, great God. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for bringing Jesus to the world to do something that only you can do. God, thank you that you are enough. Thank you that Jesus came to fulfill the law, so we haven't got to worry about doing all the right things. Jesus did all that for us. God, if there's folks today who are feeling inadequate and are not, not feeling like they're up to the task, I pray that you encourage them and give them strength and help them understand that you will use anybody who's willing. And God, if there's folks here today who don't know you, who don't understand how great and good a God you are, I pray that you come, have them come talk to me. Come talk to somebody up front, God. You made us to glow. So God, please charge us up and send us out. In Jesus' name, amen.